First Peter uh, chapter two. Let's continue in our study there. I really appreciated that Ryan uh, looking at Psalm one three and thinking about the ways of God. That was very good. Um, so this next section, now we've looked at, in chapter 1, the true grace of the new birth. The beginning of chapter 2, the true grace of the new identity. Uh, that we are living stones being built on the chief cornerstone, who is also a living stone. We are priests. Uh, we proclaim the excellencies of God in the world. Um, he expects us to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles there in verse 12. Uh, to live, like in verse 11, as aliens and strangers. This is this world's not our home. Uh, a lot of great ideas have been a part of this study so far. Uh, let me kind of give you an overview of what we're going to look at here. Notice verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. What's the first word you've got in that verse? Submit. Submit. Everybody have something like that? Therefore. Therefore, what's the second word? Submit. Submit. Right. <laughs> so submit, or therefore Submit. Go to verse 18. Servants be what? Submissive. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives be what? Submissive. And then finally in verse 7, you husbands in the same way. It doesn't use the word submissive, but it uses the phrase in the same way. So in this section, starting in 2.13 through about like 3... Uh, really, it goes through, I'd say, verse um, 13 or so, um, is this idea of submission, over and over again. Submission, submission, submission. Uh, we're going to read and talk about each section, but I want you to keep it in mind with the theme of Peter, that he was exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Most people don't think of submission as a grace, do they? They think of it as kind of a, a sentence, like it's not something very helpful in their life. You'd almost expect if God was going to write a book about grace, that it would sound something like this. Hey, if you're in a tough situation, and you don't really like the people around you, and mistreating you, and things aren't going very well, then grace is going to teach you, you can just get out of it. You know, you just don't really have to do it. Uh, leave if you want to leave, move if you want to move, just like you don't have to deal with all the unkindness. Uh, you'd almost expect that to be God's grace. But God's grace doesn't sound like that. He keeps saying, submit, submit, submit. Uh, now we're going to read a little bit um, each section and talk about the implications. But I want you to think about the word submission for a minute. Uh, submission almost always implies disagreement. Uh, the idea of submission is that you voluntarily sort of place yourself under somebody else, or you allow somebody else to have sort of the control or the power. But it, it almost always indicates that you have a slightly different thought about the thing. Now, otherwise, it's called agreement. Like, you know, in a marriage, and like a wife's like, oh yeah, I'm really submissive to my husband every time, you know, he says something, I'm like, yeah, great. Um, but the truth of the matter is, like, that's just because you like it. You know, like, when you like something and when it's the same idea you have, you're like, I'm a very submissive person. Like, <laughs> no, that's agreement. Submission implies disagreement. But there's something about the situation that you really don't like, but you humbly and submissively say, not my way, but somebody else's way. Um, it's a challenge. Uh, here are the ways it's challenging. Let's start in verse 13. 
Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Alright, this particular teaching is really um, and we might you might hear your parents talk about like the time that we live in and living in the United States and President Trump and all the leadership and the politicians and 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 you might hear Christians sort of like saying, Oh, it's so hard to live in the time that we live in. Um, by the way, that's not true. Uh, whatever we got going on in this nation is not nearly as difficult as nearly every other century that Christians have lived in almost every other place. Um, in fact, I want you to think about this from the standpoint of First Peter. Does anybody know who the king was when Peter wrote this? Who was the Roman king or emperor? Caesar Nero. Okay, Nero. Nero was the uh, the emperor at this time. Uh, was Nero a very good guy to Christians? I mean, was silly. He's like, hey, we're always in agreement. Nero, you know, like, no, Nero was a tyrant. Nero was the man who at times would actually take Christians alive and put a stake in them, like a big rod that was sharpened, and he'd like stick them with a rod, stick them up in the air, put them like, you know, up on a stake, like hanging there, writhing in pain, um, light them on fire, dip them in oil, light them on fire to make torches, so that he could like have garden parties with his friends. Um, that was Nero. Um, and you got Peter writing something like, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And what's the last thing in verse 17? Honor the king. I can't do that. Like, he's not honorable. By the way, God's fully aware of that in this text. Peter's fully aware of that in this text. When he tells you in verse 14 that governors are sent by him for the praise of those who do right, we might say, well, that's what they're supposed to be doing, you know? They're supposed to be, like, punishing evildoers and praising those who do right. But guys like Nero, they were punishing people who did right. And, and God's fully aware of that. You know how I know that? Look at verse um, 15. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence... And listen to how Peter refers to these guys. The ignorance of what? Foolish men. Is it possible that a leader is an ignorant, foolish man, but you're still called on to honor him? By the way, I think this is important. Peter could still call them ignorant, foolish men and still honor them. Like, like it's not necessarily dishonorable to say about somebody if somebody's ignorant and somebody's foolish, but that's not the same as dishonoring them. It's right here in the same text. Um, he knows they're ignorant. He knows they're foolish. But his plan is what? What's his plan? I'm going to silence them. I'm going to make it so no matter what they do or how they treat people, they're never going to be able to say anything bad about Christians. 
I don't know if you are aware of this, but in the first couple centuries, the Roman leaders really struggled with Christians. Because every time they would come against them and, you know, kill them, put them in, you know, the Colosseums and have lions eat them, or whatever they would do, whatever persecutions they brought against the Christians, the Christians kept hearing these teachings. You know, Jesus said, turn the other cheek, don't resist an evil man, you know, bless those who curse you, love your enemies. Yet Peter's saying, submit to those that are in authority and honor them. Go the extra mile. Remember Jesus taught that. That was about a Roman guard who might make you go a mile, go an extra mile. Every time the Roman leadership encountered a Christian, they might mistreat them, but they struggled because they didn't really know what to do with their kindness. And there are examples of uh, leaders that wrote one another. We still have some of the letters from those first couple centuries. And they would actually write each other and say, we don't really know what to do with these guys. Because we can't rattle them, we can't shake them, and like they just keep being good and like respectful and paying their taxes. And um, by the way, Christians, that's the goal. And I, I just got to tell you, it's not what I see happening right now with Christians in our government and in our situation. This is not how people are acting. We're losing our minds. We're freaking out. We're calling everybody names. We're saying, "Oh, look at us! We're the, the, the. stop it! Don't do that." Like, honor the king, submit to the government, like, be people that you should be, is the teaching of this thing. Um, I will tell you, your generation, it, it may be the toughest for your generation than any other ones before. I don't know what's going to happen with the way Christians are looked at. I don't know what's going to happen with you taking a stand for God's morality and what's right and wrong about men and women and marriage and all of that. There might be a lot of things about your life that will be very difficult. Um, but one thing I want you to remember is that this text teaches very clearly God's got a plan. And the plan's not going to happen if we take up swords and rebel and fight and scream and yell and complain and dishonor everyone. Um, it's going to be because we're submissive and we silence them by our kindness. Um, so there's a few thoughts about that idea of submission. Let's go to verse 18 now. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right... Um, and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Well, I want you to imagine being a slave in the first century. And every day you go, or every week you come and assemble with, assemble with the Christians. And, you know, if you're one of the slaves that's lucky enough that your master lets you go assemble, and you get there, and you have your Christian friends and brothers, and you talk about life, and, and there's this one guy in your congregation, uh, or maybe it's you, and every time you guys get together, you hear the stories of what it's like for him at home. And, you know, he comes to church with a black eye, and he comes to church with stripes on his back, and, you know, he's limping because he's been hit with a rod, you know, a few times in his knees when he's working. I mean, he's just a mess, because his master is just a jerk, and a tyrant and treats him unkindly. 
And every week when he gathers, he cries and he says, man, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, nowadays, you know, what advice do you think he'd get from Christians? Sue him. Run away, you know? Like, and I want to be clear about this. In the Old Testament, God talked about slavery. And one thing that people miss a lot is if you go look close at the laws for the slaves, they actually were always to protect the slaves. God never wanted anybody mistreating slaves. In fact, he built cities of refuge for them. And there was a provision within the law that if you were being mistreated, you could actually flee from your master to a city of refuge. And if they came and pursued and talked to the leadership of that place, there would be a trial to figure out if, whether or not you had a right to um, so there was there was protection among in, in the Old Testament about slaves, but I want you to just imagine this letter of First Peter coming to the church now, and we open the letter and we start reading and we get to this chapter two verse eighteen and Peter says servants slaves, and you, your ears perk up and you're like oh great what's he going to say you know be submissive to your masters with all respect. And a couple of the slaves are like, yeah, I can do that. I got that. Um, I got pretty respectable masters. They're really good to me. And this other guy sitting there, you know, he's got the black guy and all beat up. He's like, well, what about my master? Because I know well, you guys got good masters, but I got a terrible master. And then Peter says this, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. You think he took like a deep breath and thought, really? Like, God, you expect this from me? I thought serving Christ was going to like, make me not have to deal with stuff like this anymore. Like, I thought the grace of God in my life was going to mean that I was going to live a life free of difficulty. But now you got Peter saying, no, actually, submit and live the right way and behave yourself and do what you ought to do. <clears throat> and then he uses a, a really simple argument. He says, you know, you've gotten good at it in your life going through suffering when you've done the wrong thing. How many of you guys have done the wrong thing? Like in your family, in your house, at school, you like broke the rules, and because of that, you were harshly treated, you know? Like you got grounded, or you had to pay a fine, or you had to like go to detention. Anybody ever had that happen? And you, and you dealt with that fairly reasonably because you're like, well, I messed up. I did the wrong thing. Um, so you patiently endured your punishment, and you're like, okay, I was an idiot. Like, I, I dealt with it. But look at his argument here. He says, if you can do that, you know, what credit is it in verse 20 if you endure that kind of thing? You might think yourself, like, really proud when you go for that, but there's really no credit in it. It's like, you know, you're just a moron. So, like, you <laughs> um, Look at this point that he's making. Uh, you, you remember earlier I told you that the, the book of First Peter doesn't sound a lot like it's talking about grace because the word's not used very much. Look at verse 19. For this finds, what does your version say? Favor. Does anybody have a footnote for it? You know what word it is? Grace. It's grace. For this finds grace. Uh, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under weakness. Look down there in verse uh, 20, at the end of verse 20. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, 
and you, or if you patiently endure it, this finds, what word? <coughs> grace. grace. With God. Now, what's weird about that is it's not saying God gives you grace because of that. It's like when you do it and God looks down, it's like you gave God a gift. It's like, it's like grace to Him. And maybe you won't understand this until you're a parent. But when you're a parent and you have kids and you're watching them grow up, you try to give them good gifts. Like that's what fathers and mothers do. You try to give them good gifts. But you know what like is the greatest grace a child gives their parents? Is when they do the right things. No matter what they go through. Especially if it's like one of those moments where Somebody's been so unkind to them, so unjust, and, 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 and every other human on the planet would strike the person back and, and would react in a certain way, and your kid, you know, deals with it grace, graciously and gracefully, and does what's right, and blesses those who curse them, and doesn't, like, punch their sibling back because the sibling punched them, and, and deep inside a parent's heart, it finds favor with them. It's a grace you get them. So part of what Peter is teaching us in this book is the true grace of God calls upon us to live lives that are sometimes hard so that we ourselves can give grace to God, which is a cool idea. Um, Alright, let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. And I know I'm skipping some verses, but we're saving them until later, alright? So chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. There's a lot in that text that we're not going to talk about, but uh, it's all very important. Uh, I will just go ahead and say this. Look at verse 6. You see there where it says Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Have you ever looked for that in the Old Testament? Have you ever tried to find a place where Sarah called Abraham Lord? Have you ever done that? Have you? What did you find? I didn't find it. You didn't find it? <laughs> yeah, like you can't find a verse where Sarah calls Abraham Lord, but there is a verse that actually is that. Look at Genesis 18. Verse um, 9. This is when Abraham was uh, entertaining the angels and he was sort of feeding these messengers of God and didn't completely understand yet who they were. Uh, but verse 9, when they, they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, They're in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. 
Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, uh, my Lord being old also. You know what's interesting about Peter's comment about Sarah calling Abraham Lord is it wasn't something she said out loud. What did the text say? She said it to who? Herself. This is how she thought about him. It's not just how she talked to him. I don't, in fact, I wouldn't suggest that there's really even a biblical idea that you need to go around calling your husband Lord. The idea of the text is what means Sarah, Sarah, was when she thought about him. <laughs> she called him that in her mind. Because there's a lot of women who might be really respectful to their husbands and say, yes, honey. But in their mind, the word honey is you jerk-faced, you know, okay? Like, like you might <laughs> all the wrong things, but say the right words. Sarah was thinking the right thing about Abraham, and that made her who she was. Um, go back to the text, though, in 1 Peter 3. In, in verse 1, it says, Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, this verse over the years that I've been preaching and teaching and counseling, has become a really <laughs> difficult verse for me. Because I've met a lot of women who are married to just absolute jerks. Like, just monsters. Um, they're, you know any women like this? They're married to somebody who's not a Christian, and they just make life miserable for them. Every time they want to go to church, they give them a hard time. Uh, anytime they want to, like, contribute, they, like, lose their mind. Um, some of them are just at home, they're just unkind all the time. They're drinking, they're drunk, they're, they're doing things they ought not do. Um, I'll never forget a, a young lady in Los Angeles who had a couple kids, and she came to me and she said, I know what First Peter 3 says, but like, my husband does drugs, and like, there's drugs around the kids, and like, he's selling drugs, and like, what do we do about that? And of course, we turned that into a conversation that went back to, verses 13 through 17, that God has in the world authorities that deal with illegal activity. So if you've got a husband that does something illegal, call the cops, because that's God's messenger to deal with it. That's the idea of Romans 13. Um, there is a recourse for that. Um, it doesn't mean you put yourself or your kids into dangerous situations where there's illegal things going on. Use God's messengers for that. But short of that, um, this teaching is really hard. Isn't it? Especially if you're sitting across the table from a woman who says, you just have no idea how hard it is. Like, how big, how bad it is. Uh, for years and years, I didn't know how to respond to that. I didn't know what to say. Until I finally looked closer at verse 1. You see how the verse starts? In the same way, you wives. In the same way as what? Go back to chapter 2, verse 21. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return, and while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, 
But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. When, when verse 1 says, in the same way you wives be submissive, um, she's, he's referring to in the same way as Jesus was. Now, think this through for a minute. The Bible's always taught that we are to be in submission to God. Is that right? The Bible teaches we are to submit to God. But the story of Jesus is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And you know what we just read there in verses 21 through 23? Uh, or 25? Is there was a period in history where God submitted to us. Think about that for a minute. Where all of mankind, he had taken on the form of a bondservant and he put himself under us in a way, to serve us. And here you got him standing right in front of human beings. And their will was to kill him. And like Jesus said before Pilate, like, you wouldn't have this authority unless God would give me this authority. My Father would give me this authority. And Jesus literally submitted to the worst thing we could ever have thought to do. But notice what it accomplished. And this is what I say to wives now. I don't understand. But there is somebody who does. I don't care what your situation is. Jesus understands it. And what Jesus taught in the way that he did it is your best shot, your best shot at helping them and saving them is not to yell back. It's not to threaten back. It's not to call them names. Your best shot at winning their soul is to keep quiet and do the right thing and act the right way. And you may win them without a word. In fact, look at what Peter says about Jesus here. This is interesting. Um, in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And listen to this phrase. For by his wounds you were healed. Now this is, this is a, a strange phrase. By his wounds you were healed. Uh, let's say that you were sick and you had cancer. And you went to the doctor, and you're like, Doctor, I want to be healed. And the doctor said, Okay, well, I can do some things for you. Um, but who's he going to have to cut open? Like, who's he going to have to wound? You. Like, he's going to have to wound you. And, and there, discipline's a lot like this, too. You know, when you're disciplining kids, like, you wound them, you know, to heal them. Like, you're like... Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like make sure that you get what I'm trying to teach you, so I'm gonna smack you around a little bit, give you a spanking, and I'm gonna heal you by doing this. Uh, almost always, healing <laughs> comes by wounding the person that needs the healing. You know, a rod for the back of a fool, you know, a, a scalpel with a doctor. But here you have this teaching that the way Jesus was going to heal us was he was going to be wounded and he would heal us. What's that mean? Look at verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, now here's a shepherd, right? By the way, those two phrases are a really great description of God in the Bible. Shepherd and a guardian of our soul. But here you have the shepherd, 
And all of us, like sheep, we wander off, you know? There were different ways of dealing with that in the old you know, times, and even now as shepherds. You could go out, and you could get the sheep. So, remember the story of the hundred sheep, ninety-nine are there, one gets lost, and the shepherd goes out and does what? Finds them and brings them back. But this text doesn't read like that. This text reads that we return to the shepherd. Now, uh, a little bit about shepherds. Sometimes, if shepherds had a sheep that would wander off a lot, uh, they would go out, find it, and they would break its legs. Have you ever heard of this? Or break a leg on the sheep? And the reason they would do that is, number one, a sheep with a broken leg can't wander off, uh, but they would break the leg of the sheep, and then they would carry it around on their shoulders until the, the sheep healed. And once the sheep healed, then they would put it back on the ground to wander around, but the sheep by that time had so bonded to the shepherd that it wouldn't leave anymore. So that was like one of the techniques of, the, of how a shepherd would keep a sheep close by. But even in that situation, it's the wounding of the sheep, right? Here's the picture Peter paints. Here's what God did. God wounded the shepherd. Jesus said it like this. If I am lifted up from the earth, he was talking about on a cross, I will do what? Draw all men to myself. I want you to understand the principle of this in this text. The cross of Christ taught us something about how God wins souls. God does not win souls because we come at them with a sword and we hack them to pieces. God does not win souls because we go and wound them and tell them all the things about them that are wrong. We don't win souls because we we make life miserable enough for them and your kids will finally listen to you if you make life miserable enough. The way God has always won souls is by the suffering of the one who loves these people. And no matter what unkindness comes their way, they submit, and they're kind, and they do what's right. And that, by the way, is how you overcome evil with good. Romans chapter 12. You <coughs> feed those that mistreat you. You bless those who curse you. you. You essentially heal them by your wounds, just like Jesus healed us with his wounds. That's a hard teaching. But that's the grace of God. And God wants us to live out the grace of God in our own life. Now look at um, 1 Peter 3, verse eight, uh, verse 7. You know, it's interesting to me that the wives are given more verses there, verses 1 through 6, and that frustrates some women. They're like, how come you have more to say to us than the men? Um, but I'm going to suggest to you that what's said to the men right here is actually a lot scarier than what's said to the women. Because uh, the women, you were told pretty much this. Look, if you are married to a guy who doesn't treat you right, if you live right, God will see you and appreciate you and value you and you're precious to him. But here's what he says to the men. Listen to the men. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, there's a couple things about this verse that I find important. Number one, he doesn't say to husbands, understand your wives, which I'm really glad about. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, I've actually had this conversation with my wife, you know, like, my wife's, 
doing something that I don't understand, and I try to talk with her about it, um, and, 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 and you know, like, it, it doesn't come out exactly like this, but it's something like this. Um, she's like, you know, you need to understand me, and I, I've actually said, okay, like, I'm being completely honest right now, but do you understand me right now? <laughs> and she said, no, I don't. <laughs> and I was like, well, if you don't understand you, like, how can I understand you? Um, no, I'm really glad that, that God wasn't saying to men, your wife's like a Rubik's Cube and you got to, like, figure her out. Um, what he's saying is you need to live with her in such a way that shows that you're understanding the fact that she's different than you. Um, and though she thinks different and feels different and goes through things different, you still need to honor her by the kindness and the compassion you show her. Um, I'll tell you what's scary about this verse. Look again at the verse. At the end of it, Peter says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's figure out what that means. My prayers being hindered. I think the implication is, I am praying to God, but my prayers aren't being very effective. Imagine what this must be like for God. Uh, you got a man who's with a woman, or children for that matter, or friends for that matter, or an elder dealing with a church, and they're just unkind. They don't understand anybody's weaknesses, they don't understand anybody's requests, you know, they're always just sort of a jerk about it, and hey, you figure it out yourself, and they don't show any compassion to the people they have leadership over. And then they come to God and they say something like this, hey God... I'm sort of weak down here. I need your help. Please help me. Please provide for me. Please be forgiving of me. And, and you know, just just because I'm beset with weakness, so please help me. And God like, looks at the guy and looks at how he treats everybody and essentially says, like, you expect me to do something for you that you won't do for them? You don't want your prayers to be hindered. But now, summarize all of this. All of this. Every Christian is a part of this plan, aren't they? You live under a government. You may have a job with a boss that's not always great. You may be in a marriage where people mistreat you. Husbands or wives make life hard for you. And over and over again, what Peter says in this text is, God's got a plan. God's got a plan. God wants everyone to be saved, even the ones that are mistreating you. And his best thoughts, his best thought about how we're going to accomplish it, is submit and go through the difficulty and maintain your joy and remember who you are and treat them with kindness. And people will return to the God that made them. That's how he'll do it. Um, it's, by the way, one of the greatest evangelism plans in all of the Bible. When you guys go through evangelism workshops or you guys have evangelism studies at your church, never forget that this was God's greatest evangelism plan. It, it didn't have to do with, like, you know, door knocking. It didn't have to do with, like, having the right approach. It had to do with you living your life right in front of everyone with joy and radiance. And no matter how difficult it became, you did what was right. Um, that's how Jesus won us. Uh, I'll stop there, and we'll uh, go on to the next thing, but we'll pick up in chapter 3, verse 8.